the charities and mental health were using a lot of negative, sad imagery, language around mental health. And I thought, well, first of all, mental health needs a rebrand. My, my, my. Hello, and welcome to The Optimistic Advocate. And today we've got, oh man, we have got a really special treat for you. Today you're going to hear an interview with Catherine Getsky. Catherine is the founder of The Mood Factory. Their mission is to improve moods, and they develop products and courses that focus on doing that through getting individuals present with sensory engagement. Now, we're going to learn what that means uh, in this interview, but suffice to say that Catherine has been about the business of improving moods. Catherine is also the founder of IFRED, the International Foundation for Research and Education on Depression. IFRED is focused on teaching hope. They're all about turning our whole thought process around depression, flat on its head, and rethinking uh, how to move through depression through hope. It's quite fascinating. She has spent the last 15 years uh, developing products and curriculum, all designed to foster hope. And she talks about hope as being a skill. It's not just something innate. Maybe for you, maybe for some people, but it's also something that can be taught. I can't think of a better time than now during this pandemic, during all the horror that's going on in our country around racial injustice, not just our country, but globally. Uh, so we need a Catherine Getsky. We need Ifred. We need the HOPE curriculum. And that's what we're going to talk about today. So let's get to it. Let's go. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Catherine Getsky to the Optimistic Advocate podcast. Um, and Catherine, I want our listeners to get a sense of who this ray of sunshine is. For listeners who don't know you, it just seems like everything you do has this sense of positivity to it, which is really infectious. And I just, I'm just curious. Where where does that come from? Does that come from the Mood Factory? We're going to talk about the Mood Factory, but is is that like a, a, an ointment that you put on? It is a lot of training, a personal training. I wish it was an ointment. It'd be a lot easier. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's talk first because you've done so many things. But let's I, I, we got to talk about the Mood Factory. We got we, let's start there, and and if you could tell us the idea behind that, and we'll we'll let people know how they can visit it. Uh, in the show notes, but uh, how did that come about? You know, what, what what's the deal? Yeah, well, it started, I mean, of course it started when I was a little kid. Um, I was fortunate, my dad was a retail banker, and so he was very into retailers and visiting retailers and what made retailing work, and he knew Sam Walton back in the day when they were starting out and just-in-time inventory, and so I was really engaged in the process of how to kind of create a product, how they got on shelves, how they moved. And I was always wondering, you know, why aren't there more products that have purpose 
So, you know, instead of just coming up with a new flavor of toothpaste, why not come up with something that actually does good for society? And so, you know, I got a master's in business and I worked for a bunch of big companies. And then I went out on my own about 15 years ago. And I wanted to launch my own product that had purpose. And I wanted something, I wanted to figure out what can we create that actually improves our mood states and then gives back to moods. And so that's kind of how the company was started. It was about using our senses to get engaged in the present moment in a much more intentional way. And then to give back to charities related to mental health. And at the time when I started the company, you know, the the charities and mental health were using a lot of negative, sad imagery, kind of depressing language around mental health. And I thought, well, first of all, mental health needs a rebrand. It needs updated branding because that's not really representative of the people that have depression and anxiety. You know, it's something that impacts everyone. And so... When I bootstrapped my company, I ended up bootstrapping a nonprofit at the same time. And that's how they were kind of both born. And the nonprofit was iFred? Yes, exactly. Yeah. So tell me about iFred. So I started the international. So I named it after my brother. I wanted to name it after my brother and his name is Fred. And so because he's been really helpful and supportive to me during hard and challenging times. I've got lived experience with depression and anxiety and PTSD and so I wanted to name it after him. So I came up, I used his name and then I said, what, what letter could I, I want it to be global. So I came up with the International Foundation. Put an, an I in front of it, I International. Know. Yeah, exactly. I thought the G would be a little hard to pronounce. So, <laughs> well, so uh, now uh, folks, I, I encourage you to visit the iFred site, but there is a, um, I don't know if it's in your logo, but there's a picture of a sunflower, mm-hmm. a lot of sunflower imagery. And I'm going to do true confessions with you right now. So, so Catherine's, she's like, Perfect. Oh. no, I'm excited. <laughs> here, here we go. So Catherine's organization, I don't know how many years ago it was, but uh, uh, we put on a conference every year. And frankly, I can't remember if we were in DC or if we were down in Tampa, Florida, but I, Fred, had a booth. And it's a research conference. And Penny, who used to work for Catherine, came to, to staff the booth. And so I want folks to kind of visualize this in your mind. This is, this is heavy duty, serious research, right? It's complicated <laughs> stuff, Catherine. Yeah. This is complicated. This whole issue of mental health and, and how, we, how we help families who are challenged, right? And there's, there, the, and I love them, but there's the most preeminent researchers at this conference, right? Meet every year. And then there's Ifred. And she's got, Penny's got these little sunflowers. And she's giving out sunflowers. And, and, and I'm going to be cold stone truth here. My first thought was, what in the heck is this? But as people would go up, all serious, they would walk away from the experience and, and we're, you know, they, they might be there seven seconds, but you'd see them smiling and you'd see their shoulders relax a little bit. And, I, and I, I'm going to tie this to a, a statement on your uh, website for the Mood Factory that, uh, that, that says, not statement, it's a, it looks like it's a data point 
Um, it says one of the greatest barriers to our happiness is being out of the present moment. Research suggests this average is almost 50% of the time for us. We need to change this. And that's part of what Catherine's mission is. But I thought about this at this conference. I want you all to picture. We're all very serious. We got our notebooks and our pads. Well, we don't anymore. We're all Zooming it now. But uh, back then, you know, we and, and we're very, very serious. And there's all these tables of great information, with charts and graphs and what you can do here. And then there's Ifred, who has this, it, 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 the, the table was like, it was like this ray of light. It was uncluttered. But this sunflower stuck with me. And I can't remember if at that time there were pins with the sunflower. I, I can't remember exactly. But people change. If you wanted to have a, a like a, a behavioral experiment on how to get people to flip the switch on that 50% of being out of the present moment and being stuck in your head and worried about something complicated... They did it with this sunflower. So, you know, I wanted to share that with, it, with you and I wanted to ask you, so what's up with the sunflower? Is, it, is there some woo-woo magic in the sunflower? Or what, why the sunflower? Because it works. I don't know why it works. It's uncomplicated, yet it's as complex as all get out. Yeah. That make, does that make any sense? Oh, absolutely. And that was the intention behind it. It's so funny that that's your perception. I've been traveling around the world at these conferences and everyone thinks they, they think I'm silly in that way just because they see me, they see the yellow, I wear yellow all the time in the sunflower. And yet I'm a branding expert. And that is exactly how you create a brand. You use the same sim symbol, you repeat it over and over and over. Um, okay, I got to stop for a minute. So right in the middle of this great conversation and I asked this most relevant question about the sunflower. And Catherine's about to explain to me how branding works and how it can work with mental health, in mental health. And it's a pivotal moment and the power goes dead. Welcome to the age of the pandemic where everything is done over Zoom or in my case, Squadcast. But power is power. So the power went dead. We were out for about five minutes. And, uh, and so here's where we pick up and continue. So this way the laughing will make sense. This is unrecorded. Can you hear me? Do not upset the gods of branding, whatever you do. <laughs> that was do not, not me for the record. Upset the gods of branding. <laughs> All right. But, but basically, the point I made is this simple sunflower, which has so much complexity behind it, uh, and why? And how did you do that? Yeah, so I wanted to create a symbol for depression and really ultimately hope that focuses on the success rate of treatment. And so as a marketing person and researcher by nature, I looked at what is something that people have a positive reaction to, they can start to associate with mental health, depression, hope, that both sexes have a positive reaction to, that other nonprofits can raise money from. And the sunflower came up. It's the color yellow, which is the color of joy, hope, and happiness. It follows the sun. It grows out of darkness into light. Both men and women 100% have a positive reaction to sunflowers. So you're not alienating people. And then you use that brand impression over and over and over. And instead of associating the person, if you do a Google image search for depression or mental health, you often find someone in the corner 
isolated, alone. And that was what was so disturbing to me when I initially got in the space. We want them to focus on the positive aspect that it's treatable. Depression's treatable. It has a high success rate of treatment. Same with anxiety. If we can just start addressing these issues and be proactive, um, we can have a significant impact. So it was really about rebranding depression from that like sad, depressing, negative imagery to the positive, hopeful aspects of mental health, really. You know, it's it. it it is so powerful. And, and, and I just say that because, and I was, la- we were laughing, you don't know this, but the organizers, we, we were just chuckling. The representative for my friend is just, it was, it was like laying on of hands, folks. It was like, it was like, but it really worked in what I was just so struck with how, how you have been able and, and this, it feels like part of your message is hope is not hard. It's, we can do this. Doesn't mean it's not complicated. Doesn't mean that there's, you know, lots of factors that need to be addressed, but it's actually pretty easy to flip that switch. I don't know. Is that too much? Is that? No, I think it's true. I think what, because once I started researching hope overall, um, hope is measurable and hope is teachable. And if we know what hopelessness is, we can figure out what hope is. And that's kind of what we've done through the curriculum. But no, I mean, it's not an easy solution. And yet we, we now have the roadmap, which I feel like before for myself personally, I didn't have. Um, and that was challenging for me and disturbing. Yeah. And yet now I'm a lot clearer every day on what I have to do for my mental health to stay positive. And, and you know, when we talk about the sunflower and branding, that was a part of it. But it was also educating on the biology of the brain. So it was the symbol up front, and then it was the supporting information and work that went behind it and consistency in messaging. It was using positive language. It was teaching about the importance of celebrity engagement, getting leaders to talk about their own mental health. So it seemed very silly. And I know that, and I don't mean silly, I mean, in the honest way, you know, but I was attending the World Health Organization MHGAP forum every year. And I got the same response until they really started listening to kind of the science behind marketing and branding and how very powerful that is for changing the language around mental health. Are there two or three specific things that happen in the brain uh, when hope is interjected when when you start focusing on hope? I mean, what's happening neurologically? Yeah, I think there's a lot they don't know about it. Um, I know like one of the key things we do is, and, and hope entails a number of different things. Hope, I mean, hopelessness is two things. It's a feeling of despair and it's a sense of helplessness. So those two main components, feeling horrible and inability to act. So when you look at the opposite, to create hope, you've got to really work on the feeling state, getting from those negative kind of feelings to the more positive feelings, not good or bad feelings. Feelings are feelings, they inform us. But if we're acting when we're in a really charged, angry state and acting out of rage, it often leads to negative consequences like I've experienced with addictions and all kinds of other things. But if I can channel that energy and learn from it, listen to it and use it for positive change, I can have a really profound impact. 
So that's the feeling state of thing, things. And then there's the helplessness and helplessness is kind of a learned behavior. And if we can start to focus on how we can take actions and how we can take smart actions. So we teach our kids about specific, measurable, attainable, realistic, and time-bound as kind of a framework for those action states, chunking them down, and then the importance of connection and how to create a network for hope to support us on our kind of hopeful journey. It's, it's really changed how I see mental health. Now, hope is predictive of your future levels of anxiety and depression, which to me is really promising because you can increase your levels of hope. We know that hope is teachable. And as you increase this, you, you reduce your likelihood of anxiety and depression in the future. And yet the opposite is not true. So if you're anxious or depressed right now, it does not predict your future level of hope. So you can work on your, but for people with lived experience, I think that's such a powerful fact because you can then work on your levels of hope even if you're anxious or depressed and you can increase them. And it doesn't mean just because you're anxious or depressed now that you will always be anxious or depressed. So, I mean, we are, uh, we are in a most amazing time. I mean, it, you know, in our lives, I don't think we've ever seen anything like it. We have the global discussion around racial justice uh, with the horrific George Floyd killing. We've got a, this little thing called a pandemic that we're, in the midst of, you know, I'm, I'm pretty sure people listening to this and say, oh, this is going to be a talk about hope might be saying, how in the world can I even think about hope? I mean, what would you say to them, Catherine? I mean, I would say it's the most important time to think about hope, because if we get ourselves into a depressed or anxious state, we are not going to be able to take the action we need to to take to create the movement we want to create. And so I, to me now more than ever, we've got to really get in touch with how we're feeling, with the rage, with the sadness, and we've got to feel those feelings and release them and allow them to inform us. Um, you know, our risk for things like addiction, abuse, violence, all of these increase significantly during times of stress. And it's how we choose to manage the stress during this time that's going to really predict how well we deal with things down the road. So to me, it's more important than ever that we are addressing hope now and working to improve our ability to kind of manage our hopeful state. Well, and I know you could have never planned for this, but the curriculum couldn't have come at a better time. Talk a little bit about that. Talk about hopeful minds and, uh, and, you know, and what it is you're hoping to do and how our listeners can get involved. Yeah, I'm so excited about this. So we've been studying it, researching it the last few years in Northern Ireland. And we created a curriculum that teaches hope really as a skill. We created initially 12 lessons. We've actually reduced them down to three lessons. So like the what and the why of hope the um, two aspects of hope. So the how to get to positive feelings and then how to take inspired action and then also challenges to hope and hopelessness and how to create a network for hope, which is so important. So our, our age range is kind of K through six, but it can be used and adapted for all ages, but it really teaches the skills around hope. Now, if you can think of hope like you think of basketball, 
Um, hope is something that we aim to be good at and we practice our skills to become better. Hope is actually a better predictor of your grade, your grades than your IQ. So it's predictive of how well you'll do on, in your athlete, like in your athletic performance. Um, it's predictive of how long you live, how quickly you recover from disease. So we have like a lot of the research and the science around hope and why it's so important on our website. Um, but the program is free and we're just now looking to get the kids taught. Um, we're looking to try to build out a tech platform for it as well to make it easier to learn. It's all online and parents can download it right now. They can teach their kids at home. But my belief is hope is a human right and each and every child should have access to this. We know that hopelessness is very high in inner city youth. It's, you know, 50% of inner city youth feel hopeless on a regular basis. It's no surprise. I mean, if you're oppressed on a regular basis and living in a state of fear, it is no wonder that you would feel hopeless. And I mean, the good news is that hope is teachable and you can teach anyone how to learn about hope, how to use these skills and how to use it to improve your life. You know, my goal for the curriculum is to start a podcast and start interviewing people on the strategies that we know work and how they've specifically applied to their life. Because we learn through stories, you know, through learning from stories. But I, you know, there isn't anything that someone in this world hasn't overcome. And so to me, there is nothing that anyone should feel hopeless about. Yeah. You tested it in Ireland, you said, right? Mm -hmm. So what was the feedback from, from folks who went through it? Not only young people, but also parents. Well, the BBC actually did a documentary on it, and it was pretty powerful. The impact it had not just on the kids, but on the people delivering the curriculum. One of them had lost their um, daughter to suicide the previous year and then was in teaching the class classroom about hope the following year. Really powerful. I mean, kids, I've done focus groups with kids there. And we've actually taught it in all over the world, did a study in Malaysia as well. And, you know, anyone can use it, but it's, you know, hope is a universal concept. And so it can be used globally. I mean, people understand it globally. And um, the feedbacks, you know, the kids say, well, you need this to be everywhere. Um, and I, I agree. I mean, I, you know, hope is... Yeah, I see hope as a human right and kids deserve the access to that information. You see their self-efficacy grow, their confidence grow. They're, they have ability to manage much more than they realize and to notice kind of what states other people are in so that if they notice their brother is in a foul mood or frustrated, even if he doesn't have the skills around hope, these kids are saying, well, you know what, I may take a step back and I might not engage with him at that time. I'll go take a shower instead and I'll avoid a whole catastrophic night at home. You know, because there's so much that kids can't control these days. And yet when they are empowered with what they can, it can have a really profound impact on their lives. So the curriculum is free. People can go online. Let's say, because uh, we have a lot of... Uh organizational leaders like mental health center leaders and stuff who, who follow us, you know, let's say in their County, they wanted to 
implement a program. Could they do that? How would, how would they do that? Yeah, they could. So my goal right now, I'm looking for a major funder, a major funding partner. So my company has given a, a million dollars. Um, Sutter Health gave us 100000 McCormick gave us some money. My goal is to get another funder on board so that I can continue to make it free and available to anyone that wants to use it. They can download it. They can even get grant funding on the program and do the implementation. It was created in a way that so that anyone could read it and anyone could use it and, you know, run it in their schools or in their after school programs or in their churches or, you know, there's so many different ways we can go about teaching hope. Yeah. Give us a website. (laughs) Hopefulminds.org. <laughs> That's fantastic. Well, you you are a ray of light. Oh, I've, you know, I have one more question to ask. Yeah. This is a pandemic question. Yeah. All right. Who do you most want to have a one-on-one Zoom call with, and why? Oh my gosh, that is a great. I, I mean, can I give you a, a couple? Okay, Bruce Springsteen. I'm going to have to say because Bruce could have a concert for Hope. He could. He struggled with depression. And he could get kids around the world inspired for hope, other celebrities engaged in hope, sharing their stories about hope, getting interviewed on hope. I mean, a lot of people talk about hope and they use it as kind of a wish, but hope is actually a very researched, very scientifically based construct. And I would love to really start getting engaged with those kinds of people to teach about that. I think they could have such a profound impact. So. Definitely Bruce. Plus he's, you know, great musician. All right. I'm going to give you two more. You said okay. you wanted three because, you know, Bruce yeah. is good. I mean, you can't yeah. go wrong there. All right. I well. well, I just wrote a book on hope. So I guess Oprah, I mean, Oprah is in our hope curriculum. We, we uh-huh. share her story in hope and magic Johnson's and Ellen's. We wrote a little on each uh, three of the lessons. Um, so I would love to talk to Oprah about hope and interview her according to hopeful mindset um, and the structure I want to use for that. So I think that would be amazing. I mean, this is all going to be hope focused. <laughs> so, yes, it should be. Yes, it should be. <laughs> and then, yeah, and then probably, probably Magic Johnson or Ellen. I mean, they're tied. Sorry. Um, but there's four in there. We started at one and you're up to four. <laughs> I'm passionate about this. I mean, our kids, our kids are struggling. Our kids are in pain. I mean, it's 65% of the LGBTQ community are hopeless on a regular basis. And it's, um, you know, these are skills that I'm so passionate about getting out to these, to, you know, the ones that need them the most for sure. So yeah, it's going to be all related to hope for sure. That's okay. Yeah. That's okay. Well, Catherine Getzke, I thank you so very much for, for joining us. You are a hopeful <laughs> ray of sunshine. You absolutely are. You are a sunflower of sunshine. And uh, I, I will encourage people to check out your website and check out the curriculum. And it sounds like parents could go on today, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And then we also did a presentation they can download and pitch to their communities on why hope is so important. So Excellent. Yes. Excellent. Thanks, Catherine. All right. Thanks so much. It. Good to see you. Take care. Wow. Uh, what I tell you, folks, Catherine Getsky, an absolute ray of sunshine. And, you know, for someone as accomplished as she is, someone who travels the world, spreading the message and possibility of hope, 
She's very unassuming. Very unassuming. So, hey, she wants us to get Springsteen. You know, man, let's put the seven degrees of Kevin Bacon into play. So faithful listeners, if you know somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody who knows somebody else who might know somebody who knows the boss, let us know. We'll start working on it. Anyway, hope you enjoyed this episode of The Optimistic Advocate. And remember to like us, subscribe to us, write a review, whatever it takes to get you hopeful and excited about listening to the next episode of The Optimistic Advocate. It's going to be a good one. All right, signing off. A few good friends for some company. If you'd like to stay, you don't have to leave. We'll leave the lights on and the door unlocked. If you drop on by, you don't have to knock. We're happy to share whatever we've got.